So I'd like to begin the talk tonight with a story, actually a couple of stories. So once upon a time, this is a story about a Sufi master, a Sufi master in the traditional religious literature is a kind of a wise fool figure. There's a lot of wisdom and there's, it appears sometimes in a way that can fool you into thinking this person is a fool. <laughs> anyway, it's about a Sufi master who lived in a small village in probably Iran or Persia. And he would walk across the village square every morning to go meet his friend for coffee. The local policeman who paroled or patrolled around the uh, square saw him every morning. And, you know, it was a regular routine. He came uh, at the same time every morning, the Sufi master crossing the square. Well, one morning the, the policeman was maybe a little bored or feeling a little like interacting a little bit. So he said to the Sufi master, where are you going? And the Sufi master said, I don't know. The policeman was a little surprised, like, what do you mean you don't know? You go across the square every morning, you have coffee with your friend. Isn't that true? And the Sufi master said, I don't know. So the policeman was a little confused and said, no, really, tell me, where are you going? The Sufi master again said, I don't know. So this began to irritate the policeman. You know, he felt like he wasn't being obeyed as the resident authority in the town. So he asked, okay, he said, this time I really want you to tell me, where are you going? The Sufi master said, I don't know. At which point the policeman said, okay, that's enough of this not telling me the truth. I'm taking you in. You know, you're not uh, 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 obeying the authority. I'm taking you in. So he took him down to the jail and threw him in a cell. Okay, there was the Sufi master in his cell where he languished all day. Finally, at the end of the day, the policeman decided to drop by and see how the Sufi master was doing. Perhaps he had regained his sense and would now be truthful. So he went by the cell, and the Sufi master said, You see, I was telling the truth. I didn't know. <laughs> so therein lies a teaching tale. We assume so often in our lives that we know what's going to happen, where we're going, what will happen when we get there. We, we, we assume knowing. And this is a teaching story because it is also a part of our practice that we begin to question the assumptions that we have about what we think we know or what the results will be or how things will turn out. And, you know, it's not a bad thing that we do that. 
but we can include, and it's suggested a number of times in, our t- in the teachings, that we open our minds to what it's like to not be so certain about things. So this is that story. Another story is of a young man in the Buddhist time. His name was Yasa. He was a young, wealthy playboy. He loved to have parties. He was a party guy. So he would gather his friends and they would carouse way into the late night, early morning, hours. And he lived his life like this for some time. And then something in him began to perhaps wake up or turn. And one night he, at the end of a long night of carousing with his buddies, he suddenly thought to himself, what the heck am I doing with my life? What is this? Where am I going? I'm, I feel lost. I feel confused. I don't even, I, I, I feel afraid because I don't know what, where I'm going. I don't know. I feel lost. So he was expressing these feelings and somebody, a friend of his said, well, maybe you should go talk to the Buddha. I hear he's in the neighborhood. The Buddha was known at that time as a teacher, but also as a healer as a person who could help people who were having emotional difficulties. In many ways, the, the Buddha was like, one of, like a very well-trained trauma therapist, we could say. <laughs> you read about how he interacted with people. He was very astute in seeing what people needed. So anyway, Yasa went off to find the Buddha, and he found him indeed. And... Uh, the Buddha saw Yasa and immediately knew he could help him. And he said, come, Yasa, come. All is well. You are safe now. There's nothing more to be afraid of. We will talk together and we will sort out what you're talking about. And I will teach you the Dharma. So Yasa was very relieved to hear these words, just as you are when you meet somebody who you feel just you feel comfortable in their presence, you feel safe, you feel understood, and so you relax. And so that was the, the uh, influence the Buddha had on Yasa. And he calmed down and went with the Buddha, and the Buddha taught him the Dharma. And at the core of t- this teaching was an, was an attempt to reorient Yasa, to teach him an attitude towards himself and the world that was not frightened or judgmental or all confused and with a sense of uh, loss, loss, being lost and afraid. So he introduced him to the teachings and in particular the teachings of the Four Noble Truths which when understood, it is said that when we understand the Four Noble Truths thoroughly, we, we have a different view of the world, of ourselves, and how we can function and have a sense of well-being in our lives. So, 
the Four Noble Truths. Most of you know these teachings, but I will quickly, speedily review <laughs> the, four, the Four Noble Truths. The, the first of these is the truth that in life, not that all of life is suffering, but that in life there is a, 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 a discontent, a disharmony, a, things being not quite right, Things are hardly ever perfect. Things are always a little bit out of, out of sync. So it can be extreme suffering or it can just be this sense of things not being quite like I want them to be. The cause of this suffering is not in the things themselves but in our perception that they should be different than they are that this discontent, this suffering, this out of harmony shouldn't be this way, but it should be the way I think it should be. Then I will be happy. Then I will be fine. If only he, if only she, if only they, if only the world were a little bit different in just the way that I say, then things would be much better. Anybody recognize any of themselves in this idea? Yeah this trying to make things like we want them to be. That's one expression of the second noble truth, sometimes called uh, sort of the addictive craving for things to be a certain way. The third noble truth is the truth of the end of suffering, that when we can open to things as they are, things in, in as they are, and see them clearly and have a sense of being in harmony with things, even when we don't like them, still there can be a sense of harmony, then there's the end of suffering. Then there is the relaxation of our demand that things be different. And the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path, the way of life that promotes and helps us live in harmony with things as they are. So by, uh, by understanding the Four Noble Truths, we change our view, our attitude towards life's inevitable difficulties. When something really bad happens, we don't become a victim of fear or horror. We can cultivate a relationship with the suffering, with unwanted experience that is liberating rather than fear-provoking. And that's huge. So some of the inquiries we've been doing have been pointing in that direction, coming into harmony with things as they are, not as we would hope them to be, but as they are. And I would say, and I think, you would agree that for most of us, aging and dying are kind of unwanted experiences. It's not like, whoopee, (laughs) wow, I'm finally getting to the aging. Isn't this wonderful? You know, there are wonderful things about aging. I'm not saying it's all bleak, but there is a general feeling of not being in control of our bodies, 
You know, the, our bodies are doing what they do and not asking us, you know, wrinkles appear, the skin sags, the muscles ache, the bones are fragile. Things happen that we don't have a lot of control over. So there's a feeling of vulnerability, perhaps. These are not on our bucket list. So aging and dying present us often with challenge, with a sense of being challenged to find a way to be accepting, to be, uh, to have an attitude of opening and learning and it, 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 it provokes a certain kind of humility, I think, because we have never been old before, right? I've never been 80 before, so I, I am in a, a state of learning about what that means. And it, 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 it's not like... Uh, it's going to earn me uh, something of great, you know, like I'm not going to get a, an award or a, a degree because I'm learning about being 80 years old. But, but it gives in the sense of knowing how to live with, knowing how to have a relationship where there is the maximum sense of potential for growth, for liberation, for compassion, for wisdom. So the rewards are this sense of growing spiritually. A Thai forest teacher, Ajahn Lee, wrote this. He said, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. Really? You know, like, really? Is that really? They are noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. Well, that attitude is so far from where most of us begin this journey, right? Most of us would not be writing that in our journals. Wow, these are treasures. (laughs) But... For those who understand them, they are indeed because they provide an opportunity for liberation. And it makes a lot of sense from the Dharma point of view because as we ourselves age and open to the truth of impermanence, of emptiness, of the suffering, of wanting things to be different, we begin to take to heart what the Buddha laid out as the cause of suffering, all the ways that we grasp and cling to things being a certain way. Have you noticed aging doesn't allow you to hold on? You might want to hold on to the fact that you ran marathons, and maybe you simulate that to some degree in your life, and good for you, that's wonderful. But you can't make it stay. You can't be that way all the time, can you? I, I love painting myself. I'm, I, I, I have painted for as long as I've practiced. Not, not in a professional way, but just for the sheer 
love of color and form and paint and all that. Now I have a tremor in my right arm. Maybe some of you have noticed. It's not a it's not Parkinson's, it's not life threatening, it's it's just it's called an essential tremor. <laughs> I don't think of it as essential myself, but <laughs> that's what it's called, an essential tremor. Not to be worried about, but there it is. So my painting. Mm. Oh, we have a new way to draw a line now. It's not as straight and smooth and you know, under my control as it used to be. It has a quiver in it. Okay, well, that's the way it is. So what are we going to do? So we are forced into some kind of letting go. Our old life is ending. We don't see what the future holds. We don't know. We don't know. There's so much we don't know. So we are faced with perhaps a sense of radical discontinuity. We haven't been old before. How are we going to navigate? But the good news in all this, to our rescue is this simple but not so easy practice of mindfulness. This is where mindfulness steps in and provides a bridge, steps in and provides a way of living that will support us in finding our way moment by moment. Mark Epstein, the Buddhist therapist, wrote, we do not have to be afraid of entering unfamiliar territory Once we have learned how to hold experience within the gentleness of our own minds. That's beautiful. We don't beat ourselves up about not knowing things or having to figure out a new way of operating. We bring that quality of kindness and clarity into our experience a gentleness that we need as we coach ourselves through these unfamiliar places in our lives. With mindfulness, we can transform the seeming obstacles into objects of meditation. And this is a core understanding of how mindfulness works. For example, fear. Anybody have any fear come up for them about aging or dying or about living or about sitting or about anything? Fear can be a rather pervasive force in our mind. So what to do? We can hope it goes away. Does that work? Not not really. It may be a little while. We can go to the movies and distract ourselves, but... Fear, finally, I call it mindfulness as the last resort. (laughs) Finally, we say, okay, I've tried everything else to make the fear go away, but it keeps coming back. So you hear a teacher talk about being mindful of fear. And you think, okay, I'll give that a try. 
reluctantly because who wants to be with fear? It's, you know, it's a hard thing to be present with. But mindfulness gives us the tools to understand how fear operates, to see the story of fear, to understand that the story of fear is just a story. It's not reality. And that we can begin to sort out all the ways the fear has an impact on our minds, our bodies, our hearts, what it does to us. And we begin to understand that we can have a relationship with fear. We don't have to be, uh, we don't have to be uh, controlled by fear. We can have a relationship with fear which ends up looking like courage. We end up looking like courage. How else are we going to learn courage except by facing our fears? So mindfulness has a, a major role to play in this transformation that we can find in working with difficult mind states, working with things that are difficult. So I hope this is something you are learning on this retreat. And more generally, how to make any experience of yours that you might be having about aging or dying, any experience at all that you have can become an object of your mindfulness, an object of your inquiry. You can begin to discover what's going on so that you have a more conscious and more harmonious relationship with that which we have tried to get rid of in so many different ways. Mindfulness means making friends with all aspects of ourselves, the, the, the things we like and the things we don't like. Ramdas said, to make peace with aging is to make peace with change. It's another way to talk about letting go, that things are changing in ways that perhaps are not desirable for us. In other ways, maybe things are changing in a positive direction. We have to remember that as well. So how do we relate to the changes of aging? And in particular, how can our aging help to prepare us for the big change to come, which is the, the, the change that we will experience when we die? We could say that our practice, our aging process and our practice are both helping us learn how to let go, we could even say, learn how to die. We are learning how to allow things to flow, to arise and cease moment to moment. We are learning how to be with things as they are, not as we want them to be or how we fear them to be, but as they are. And when we let go, we find out so much 
Because when we're holding on, we're blocking some kind of actual help. When we're just holding on, we're not actually open to what's there that could support us. Here's an example. There's a woman named Sister Chan Kong, who was a Vietnamese woman who was a teaching partner with Thich Nhat Hanh. She and he were both monastics in Vietnam during the war. Maybe some of you have met her. She sings. She sings beautiful songs in Vietnamese and lovely, lovely being. And she and Thich Nhat Hanh, great friends for many years, they used to go into the villages in Vietnam and help the villagers whose villages had been bombed. Sometimes, twice, three times, these villages would be bombed over and over again. But Sister Chan Kong and Thich Nhat Hanh would just go and help whatever they could do, rebuild after the bombing. You know, you can think of the pictures we see of Syria, for example, and get an idea of what they were dealing with. You know, when your city is bombed, you know, what could be worse? I mean, it just is horrible. But anyway, she says, and she tells a story about herself that one time that one village had been bombed a number of times and she just got so discouraged. She just started weeping and she felt so angry and helpless and horrible. And so she, she just lost it, you know. She just had to let out her feelings. She wept in frustration. But then she finally calmed herself and began to do some walking meditation. And then she began to sit in the rubble and just sit there and breathe. Just calm herself, feel her breath, just be with herself. And while she was doing that, her eyes fell on the rubble and she saw this tiny little yellow flower coming up out of the rubble. Tiny little flower. And it just touched her heart, just touched her heart. And she thought to herself, oh my goodness, if this tiny little flower can continue to bloom in the middle of this rubble, then I too, can continue my work of helping in this village. She said, it inspired me and gave me strength. We don't need to see a whole field of yellow flowers. We only need to see one tiny flower making its way as a way to show us the way. So these kind of spontaneous things are more likely to happen when we are at our wit's end. You know, we're just at the end of knowing what to do. And suddenly something appears that we gain inspiration from. Have you had that kind of experience ever? Yes? I have had that happen a number of times. And it's very instructive because it says what's here is is more full of potential than we know. When we're so determined to do things our way or we're holding on to how it's supposed to be and how we think we have to make it, we miss 
some of our actual, you could say, allies on the spiritual path that are waiting to help us, but we're, we're not open to them. But with mindful awareness, we find our way. We find our way. We come in the hall, we sit down, we think, this is impossible, I can't do another moment of this. But somehow we do a few more moments. And then maybe five minutes later, you're, you're radiating love for all beings. You know, you just never know in your own practice what's around the next corner, what's around the next breath. You don't know what can come your way because it's not operating according to the way your mind operates. It, it's operating according to its own laws and intelligence. So more and more trusting that when we give ourselves and we open, something will appear. And the Sufi master, he told the truth. He didn't know where he was going. And the truth is, we don't know where we are going. We really don't. And the next step is to understand, we don't know. And the next step is to understand, we don't need to know. We think we need to know. Do you need to know what you're going to be thinking at 9.45 tonight? (laughs) Or is there anything right now that you badly need to know? If you do, you know, let me know. No, we don't need to know. From our practice, we learn what is needed. And this is important. What is needed is our capacity to be aware as conditions unfold. Our capacity to be present, to be aware as conditions unfold. That's what we really need. Our natural intuitive wisdom awakens as we stay in touch with what is true moment to moment. This is something we learn as we practice. And this teaches us a lot about letting go. It teaches us a lot about how to die. And it teaches us something about the nature of death itself. Because dying happens, I think it's safe to say this, dying happens not in one grand moment, like you're alive and then you're dead. It's more of a process. And the body knows how to die. Our job is to surrender to the natural process moment to moment. And learning how to do that on the cushion, learning how to do that in our own experience is directly, uh, can be directly applied to the, the process of dying itself. But many of us like, okay, I'll, I wasn't going to read this till later, but I think I'll read it now. Somebody suggested that um, there are actually, there's actually more than one death, one moment of death. 
which sounds strange, but I think you'll see when I read this what I'm talking about. There are different assessments of the moment of death. One, when the breath stops. Two, when the heart stops. Three, when the brain shows no signs of functioning. Or, one author counts three deaths. When the brain ceases functioning, when the body is cremated or buried, and the third, and this is really the kicker, when your name is spoken for the last time on planet Earth. Your name never again spoken. No one living knows you even existed. Maybe that's the true death. So this mysterious process of dying, you know, it, <laughs> mostly we have ideas about it, but we don't really know the reality of it. We don't really know what it will be like to be present. Like Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> well, if you've signed up for mindfulness, you're probably going to be there to some degree, when it happens. I find that very interesting myself. Like, wow, I, I want to see what happens. Don't you? Don't, do you feel any interest in like, wow, this is it. This is how it, or maybe it won't be like that. Maybe it'll be something different. But I'm, I like to think that I'm interested Many of us are unfamiliar with death and with the process of dying, partly because we we're not around it very much. We don't see very many bodies, do we? Unless you work in the morgue or in the hospital or something. You know, it's hard to find a body. You know? <laughs> the Buddha said to contemplate bodies, but it's hard to find. You have to get special permission to look at a body. Whereas in India, you know, India is the place I've seen the most bodies because they're carried through the streets, open. You can see the body. You go to the cremation grounds, many bodies, different states of being prepared for burning, burning bodies, bodies that were partially burned, you know. It's, it becomes sort of more, uh, less scary in a way, because it's all out in the open. You feel more like it's just part of life, the burning of a body. It doesn't have that sense of being hidden away somewhere in a secret place, and I don't know, whatever else we think about it. So it is also in becoming more familiar with, with death and with um, the idea of being, preparing ourselves for death. Prepare, the part of aging is this learning to let go, learning to open ourselves to not knowing, learning to uh, see that death is not something to be feared. How would that be? Part of what will help us is to look at our attitudes. 
towards death. So I want to give a very brief overview of different attitudes and beliefs about death and dying that we can recognize as being present in our Western culture. Because most of us, I believe, are probably raised in a Western culture where the ideas about death are pretty limited, but perhaps strongly uh, inculcated into you as a child. So the first of those is this idea that death is annihilation. It's the end. You and the body are the same. That's who you are. The body goes. When the body goes, consciousness goes with it. The end. Nothing more. It's over. So maybe many of you grew up with that idea. Another idea that we may have learned is death is the judgment day. It's sort of like, you know, (laughs) I don't know why I just thought of Santa Claus. Um, (laughs) You know how Santa Claus has been keeping track of your good deeds and your bad deeds. The same with judgment day, you know. God has been keeping track of your misdeeds as well as your good deeds and either you will be rewarded by going to heaven or punished by going to hell. So these beliefs about the end and judgment, these are kind of core beliefs that are prominent in our Western culture. And based on these ideas about death, what are some of the attitudes that come with that? Well, one is enjoy life while while you got it. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. Don't think about death. Don't even think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about death. They're talking about death. I'm leaving. You know, we just become phobic about any topic that has to do with death. Or the idea is to fight death. Dylan Thomas Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. You know, fight it. Death is defeat. We don't want to be defeated, so we need to fight it. And this attitude is sometimes found in the medical profession. Any, any death is a, def- is a defeat of the doctor's skill, of his reputation, perhaps. So it's the enemy. Now, the problem here is, there's a number of problems, but one is that this may make a patient feel like they're also failing if they don't survive, Right? Like the father of a student of mine who had been a very successful oil man in Texas, CEO, he was suddenly dying. And all he could say to his daughter was, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Because for him it was like a shameful thing. And it must be his fault that he was dying. 
Or Jack LaLanne, the fitness guru, who said, I can't afford to die, it would wreck my image. (laughs) Yeah, this is what goes on. So then we come to Eastern views of death, death, the view of death that certainly Buddhism is the stream of teachings from which Buddhism comes, the teachings in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, India, Nepal, uh, that whole area. The Eastern view of death as is quite different. That death means a continuity of consciousness after the body dies. Not, not a continuity of identity, like, I, like Anna Douglas will not go on to become Anna Douglas in some other form, but the continuity of consciousness will continue. And that death is a spiritual opportunity for awakening or gaining a fortunate rebirth. Because in the Eastern religions, the idea of uh, rebirth is very commonly held. I don't know so much whether it is, as, as, the, as these countries have been affected by the Western culture, maybe some of that is not as strong as it used to be. But the predominant thing has always been that death is like a portal either to liberation, to full awakening, or to another more, uh, another life in a, in a better place, in another realm. And in, and in this view, our body is not who we are. The body has been on loan. At death, we take it off as we would a garment, like an overcoat. We don't need it anymore. The idea is that death is something to to prepare for. The relevance of our spiritual practice is emphasized. Rumi wrote these lines, what is found now will be found then. What does that mean? It means that we have habits of mind that will follow us into our dying process. We may be filled with fear. If we haven't worked with that fear, that's maybe what we take with us. If we are filled with rage, that maybe that's what we will take with us. If we are filled with gratitude and love, maybe that's what we'll take with us. So this idea that what it, we find in our consciousness now and that becomes a habit is, will also be found in that process. It will be with us. This kind of attitude is really foreign to our culture. Joan Halifax In contemporary Western culture, death is not usually regarded as a teacher with whom to spend time, 
but rather as a looming biological and even moral failure to be denied and avoided. We do not hold a collective view of death as redemptive or liberating, but see it as an enemy to be beaten, or at least a bad situation to be endured. The possibility of realization at the moment of death is not part of the story our culture is telling us. So death has little or nothing to offer most of us. And under those circumstances, it is often justifiably feared. Yeah. So depending on our view of death, a lot, it has a big impact on how we think about our life and what our values are and what we're about and what's important. So I assume because you all are here in a Buddhist center on a retreat that you are perhaps more open to different ideas of death and dying than many in the mainstream culture. So I think you're giving yourself a great gift in just like opening your, your understanding to include other ideas about death. That's really the... The uh, what I wanted to convey tonight was that there's many different ways of looking at death and that can help us be more open in our own understanding. So here is Thich Nhat Hanh who writes beautifully about death, uh, inviting us to open our awareness to the larger context of what we call birth and death. He said, don't think you were only born in that moment written on your birth certificate. That was not your first moment. Before that moment, there were moments you were already there. Before you were conceived in the womb of your mother, you had already been there in your father and your mother in another form. So there is no birth, no real beginning. And there's no ending. When we know that birth and death are together always, we are no longer afraid of dying. They cannot be separated. This is a very deep meditation. You should not meditate with your brain alone. You have to observe life throughout your day so that you see birth and death in everything. Trees, animals, weather, matter, energy. Scientists have already pronounced that there is no birth and no death. There is only transformation. So transformation is possible, is real. When you, what you call birth and death are only transformation. Antoine Lavoisier the father of modern chemistry in the 18th century said, nothing is lost, nothing is created, all is transformed. So this speaks of a very amazing, large, complex process in which we are embedded. This process of transformation of life and death and birth and death 
all of us, all living beings, all plants, all animals, all humans. Again, Thich Nhat Hanh writes another metaphor. He, he says, it's like a wave who believes that she is subjected to birth and death. Every time she comes up and then begins to go down, she's afraid of dying. But if the wave realizes that she is water, she's no longer afraid. Before going up, she is water. Before going down, she is water. And after going down, she continues to be water. There is no death. So it's very important that the wave does some meditation and realizes that she is a wave, but she is at the same time water. And when she knows she is water, she is no longer afraid of dying. She feels wonderful going up. She feels wonderful going down. She is free from fear. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, died of cancer. And when he was dying, his disciples, who loved him very much, all said to him, Ramana, don't go, don't go, don't leave us, don't go. And he said, not to worry, where would I go? <laughs> so let's look at some other ideas about death. I'm going to ask you to see if you can think who said some things. So I'll read this and see if you can think who might have said this. Death, when we consider it closely, is the true goal of our existence. I have formed during the last few years such close relations with this best and truest friend of mankind that this image is not only no longer terrifying to me, but is indeed very soothing and consoling. And I thank my God for graciously granting me the opportunity of learning that death is the key which unlocks the door to our true happiness. No? That's a good guess? Huh? No? No? We could be here a long time. You, I, you, would n- you probably would never guess. So do you want me to tell you? Yes, yes. Okay, Mozart. Isn't that a surprise? Okay, so let's see. Um, seeing death as the end of life is like seeing the horizon as the end of the ocean. That's good, isn't it? David Searles, contemporary author, said that. Okay, here's one. Let us deprive death of its strangeness. Let us frequent it. Let us get used to it. Let us have nothing more often in mind than death. We do not know where death awaits us, so let us wait for it everywhere. To practice death is to practice freedom. Montaigne. Now this is one I really like. 
Never say about anything, I have lost it, but only I have given it back. It is your child dead? It has been given back. Is your wife dead? She has been returned. This was a Greek philosopher, Epictetus. Of course you don't die. Nobody dies. Death doesn't exist. You only reach a new level of vision, a new realm of consciousness, a new unknown world. One of our contemporaries, Henry Miller. And finally, I'll read this one. When death finally comes, you will welcome it like an old friend, being aware of how dreamlike and impermanent the phenomenal world really is. Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. So these are little seeds to plant in your psyche to think about death and all the different ways that people have tried to express something about it. Of course, the truth is nobody really knows, but it's sort of interesting how people try to come into relationship with death, to make it a friend, to make it less fearsome. So a basic premise of this teaching and this retreat is that while it is the medical professional's job to care for the body, and we have wonderful medical care in this country, we have, you know, state-of-the-art, all kinds of amazing things can happen in the medical world to care for the body. But when it comes to dying, there's a peace totally missing, which is the concern or care for the spirit, the psyche, the mind, the existential uh, meaning of what it means to die. That's absent for the most part in the medical world. So our job, we have a job. And that is to care for our minds as we are approaching death, as we prepare for death, as we are dying. That is the practitioner's realm. Who is my enemy? Who is my friend? My mind is my enemy. My mind is my friend. So we see this on a daily basis as we sit, right? At times your mind is not such a friend and other times you're being shown beautiful qualities of heart and mind of kindness and love and generosity and patience and tranquility all these things just come and you know are given to us so we we have this opportunity to cultivate 
a mind that will help us, that will be an ally for us as we prepare for dying, as we approach that time of life. And this goes very along very much with the Buddha um, giving advice to an old student of his. This old student was dying. And he asked to see the Buddha. The Buddha went to visit him. And the old man said, what would you advise, Buddha? Tell me what to do. And the Buddha said, although your body is sick, let not your mind be sick. Thus, you should train yourself. So that is the essence in a nutshell. Though your body is sick, let not your mind be sick. And we can practice that. We don't have to be dying to practice that. You know what I mean? When you have a cold, when you've got the flu, when you've got an allergy, or whenever it is you're laid up, can we begin to practice then? Can we begin to find a way to be with that without the mind collapsing into fear and anger and self-pity and all the rest. Okay. I think I'm done. Thank you for your kind attention. (laughs) Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.